The one thing that I'm really, really convinced of is if you chase everything, you'll catch nothing. You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week, we share leadership development, coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is J.R. Flatter, and I'm your host of Building a Coaching Culture. I'm here with the famous Lucas Flatter, our co-host. Hello. So you and I are going to riff for a while. I have a very important topic to me. Mm-hmm. Hopefully our listeners will find it informative and educational and helpful. So just reminding ourselves and everyone else, talking to leaders of complex organizations that are trying to create a coaching culture to be competitive in this 21st century hyper-competitive labor market? How do we attract world-class talent, keep world-class talent? So one of the things I've been thinking long and hard about is, and I know this sounds cliche, but this relationship between why I do what I do, the demographic that I'm focused on serving or called to serve maybe, and then the niche, niche, depending on what part of the world you're from, that I'm serving. So I want to have a conversation about the intersection of why demographic and niche or niche. Mm-hmm. Which is funny. I don't know if you've been to Barcelona, but you're driving down the main one of the main avenues in Barcelona. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of niche graves carved to the side of the rock as you're driving down this major highway, which is the origination of the word. It was your place of rest carved mm-hmm. into something was your niche. And so every time I talk about this, I think about Barcelona. <laughs> yeah, that puts a. Uh morbid spin on the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somebody invited me to go on a tour of the catacombs in Rome. I'm like, mm, I don't think so. I think I could live without that one. Yeah, that's the beginning of an Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> We're saying the mission, the demographic, and like your special spin on it, or what angle you're coming from personally with 2RL? Or? I think it's me personally, because I think we have a good sense of where 2RL is, the division of our bigger company, Flatter. And it's in that coaching and coaching accreditation space which I think you can have an individual focus for me personally, and then a corporate focus. Now, certainly my personal focus needs to fit into my corporate focus. Otherwise, our CEO will send me home. But yeah, I think defining that personal focus for myself is what I'm struggling with. You might see it if you're following me on LinkedIn. I've been changing my byline almost every day for the last six months, trying to find the language that's finally going to speak to me for more than 24 hours. Do you go back and read it and it's just how it strikes you? Because I know like a marketer might do that and they say, here's one and here's another and whatever has the best numbers. Yeah, I'm thinking it's more when I'm running. Right. So part of running or riding my bike is work family self. It's time for myself because I love doing it so much. But it's also a time of mindfulness and reflection and 
you're on a bike two, three hours, or you're on a long run, which at the pace I run, a long run is two or three hours. You get a lot of time to think. And so I'm iterating on this stuff. And then I say, well, that wasn't right. <laughs> and then I get back and I change it. I think I'm getting pretty close. So if you don't mind, let's just take a step backward mm-hmm. and try to define each one and how they're different and how they work together. And it might be that my understanding is incorrect. So the why, I've just reread Simon Sinek, Start With Why, which I think is a fundamental book. If you're asking these questions, and I hear it come from several different angles. Your why is what gets you out of bed in the morning. Your why is what motivates you. Your why is your calling. And I think all those things are true. So that's part of what I'm struggling with, right? Having unsuccessfully retired twice and now coming back for the third career, but the fifth act of my life. Mm -hmm. So if you're a fan of Shakespeare, I'm in the fifth of seven acts. I was a soldier. I retired from that. I was in the CEO chair for 15 years. And now I'm in this bespeckled elder phase telling my stories with my big round belly, which is badly misquoted, but it's something like that. And so who am I in this phase, this act? You know, I stepped out of the chair five years ago, so I've had five years to figure it out, but still kind of struggling with it. Not at a corporate level again, but at a personal level. Mm-hmm. So. Throw your coaching hat on and coach me through this. So are the same things motivating you now that motivated you when you were CEO and in the Marine Corps? Do you have different ideas about that now? Yeah, great question. I think I'm a lot freer now. So obviously when you're on active duty in the military, you have certain obligations. Even though leadership is central to your world, there's a lot of other things going on. In the CEO chair, revenue's got to see the expenses all the time, right? So you're constantly thinking about that. And I still think about that, but not as much. And so I have the freedom to explore and the freedom to chase that very finite vision. So that's a big part of it is what do I want to do and what's fulfilling versus what do I need to do to pay the bills, get you mm-hmm. through college. So yeah, I think it's a lot more free. I'm a lot more free. And I had three very clear goals for three decades, and those are very fortunately completed. And so reinventing who I am, I guess part of this is probably I turned 60 in a couple of weeks. So there's some of that going on. Am I really serving my calling in these final decades of my personal and professional life? So all that's swirling around. And so if you look at my LinkedIn byline today, And one of my uh, students actually remarked on it today. I won't mention it by name, but somebody you know well. Dang, I can't keep up with you. (laughs) You keep changing your byline. Mm -hmm. But I think the word, the the closest I've gotten in a long time is, I know I was very frustrated when I was transitioning. Because you go from one kind of career to another kind of career, and you don't have a track record. You have a track record of success in your former career, but... You don't have a track record going forward. So the word frustration comes to mind. I was very frustrated. Mm -hmm. I got offered a job by a big company. And when they slid the offer across the table, I said, have you even read my resume? Mm -hmm. And they said, well, yeah, but this is what we offer people of your rank and experience coming out of the military. Wow. (laughs) The, the doctor doesn't count. The This doesn't count. That doesn't count. It's only because I was in the military this many years and that this rank. So I think 
part of my calling is to work with people who are frustrated mm-hmm. with our current situation for whatever reason. Okay. And so you mentioned kind of like that you had goals that were completed and we started talking about, you know, Simon Sinek's finding mm-hmm. the why and everything. Yeah. So would you say that even though your goals are complete, that you're still kind of following that same path that you were walking before? Or is it like clear delineation between before you completed the goals and after? Yeah, I've got to be careful here because I don't want to belittle any life experiences, but I'll never know what postpartum depression is all about. But I think I have a sense of where that might come from, like this grand expectation and that it's there. And you're like, okay, (laughs) that just happened. And now what? So I think this 18 month journey that I talk about getting where I am right now was part of that. It's like, I'm still full of energy, still full of desire, still full of all of those things drive. And so that never went anywhere. But what do I do with it was the biggest challenge, I think. But going back to the statement of the why is I get this amazing joy from watching people connect the dots for the first time. Like, oh, wow. So coaching brings that. Coaching accreditation brings that. So I wandered around the forest finding those two things for a while. Mm-hmm. Thought I wanted to be a philanthropist for a while. Thought I wanted to maybe even go teach again back in school. But I think I found this, what I consider a real calling in this coaching space, in this coaching accreditation space. So working with people who are frustrated at transition with coaching and coaching accreditation, I think I'm getting really, really close to the demographic, the why, and the niche. So to differentiate those three, the the why is the why. Why do you get out of bed? What excites you? Why are you still motivated? And then the demographic is the with whom. So that's the audience. And the with whom, I think, are frustrated leaders. For whatever reason, they're frustrating, wanting to break out and go do something more fulfilling. And finding the freedom for them, finding white space in their calendar, finding this new skill set if it is coaching. If it's not coaching, how can coaching or coaching accreditation get them closer, get them to their vision? And then the third one is the niche. And so the niche is the what, what's the product? Mm -hmm. So the why, helping people self-discover, the demographic frustrated leaders trying to break out of something into something. And then the what, the product is coaching and coaching accreditation. So I think that's as close as I've gotten in this entire time. So once you ask me some coaching questions to make sure I'm not just drinking my own (laughs) Kool-Aid. So I guess something like you were going back to talking about, you know, wanting to balance revenue and your mission. So is there a challenge finding those frustrated leaders, like connecting them with the niche, your product? Like talk to me a little bit about marketing and finding these people. Yeah. So here's another book we'll throw into the mix. This guy wrote this amazing short book, Nail Your Niche. And I highly recommend it. But one of the things he talks about, which is so true, if you build it, they will not come. (laughs) You got to tell them you exist. (laughs) Yeah, that's terribly challenging. Because you and 10,000 other voices are trying to break through the same fog of communication. But the one thing that I'm really, really convinced of is if you chase everything, you'll catch nothing. Mm -hmm. 
And so by going through the pain, the frustration, the time to identify very clearly those three things, what's my why, therefore, who am I serving, and therefore, what am I delivering, why demographic niche, you can then say, who am I speaking to? So every LinkedIn post, every tweet, every Facebook post, every, what do you call it on Instagram? Uh, (laughs) I'm showing my boomer (laughs) ignorance. Every time you publish on Instagram, wherever you're at, what's the latest one that the Gen Z's and young TikTok, TikTok. Yeah. Everything you're doing on is speaking to those three things. And if it doesn't, then you don't. We have a saying called chasing the bright, shiny object. If your post is chasing a bright, shiny object, you didn't really write those three clearly enough. And you're probably wasting your time and energy. So in that regard, breaking through this fog of communication, the more you work to sharpen those three things, the more likely you are going to be to find somebody to come to this thing that you've built. It made me think like the customer's perspective, like they might have a very specific problem, but there's five different solutions. So they have their why, like I am frustrated as a leader. How does coaching compare to the alternatives that a leader might take? Like, I don't know, getting a degree or a certification Mm -hmm. or whatever else they might want to do. Yeah. So there's really two sides to the coin on this question. And one is, are you and I going to use our coaching skills to help them discover why demographic niche? So that's hats that you and I wear. But you and I also wear coaching accreditation hats, where if your why is you want to serve and your demographic, whatever that might be, and your niche is coaching, then the coaching accreditation path is the right path. So I'll I'll just put our coaching hat on because when you're coaching, you're helping the leader that you're working with self-discover those things on their own. So I don't want to split academic hairs between what is mentoring and what is coaching, but the differences in the simplest way I could describe it is who's in the driver's seat and who's making the decisions. So when you and I are coaching, we're in the passenger seat and the leader we're working with is in the driver's seat. To quote Liam Neesham, you and I have a particular set of skills that help them facilitate discovery of those. So you're surreptitiously coaching me, asking me open-ended self-exploratory questions. And my mind is putting things together that it wouldn't otherwise without those open-ended questions. So you're not guiding me anywhere. You're using your coaching skills to facilitate me discovering things I need to do. You may serve as an accountability partner with your coaching role. So at the end of this, what are your prepared to commit to before we meet again or in the next year or in the next quarter and then help me stay accountable to those things. So, you know, having been a leader for 40 plus years now, I have a lot of stories. I have a lot of experience, but I'm not you. And I never will be you, even though you and I have lived together your whole life. I don't know your life experiences. You have a different wife than I have. You have a different child than I have. You're the one who knows those things best. And so as your coach, I would use my skills to help you discover your path, your why, your demographic, your niche. It seems like there's some paradox between like you're trying to market and be upfront and like, here, you should do this. And that's like the mentoring side. And then, but you're marketing coaching services. So is it challenging to kind of navigate that language? like? You can't advertise 
like a coach or can you? I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a great question. A great coaching question because I just connected those two dots for the first time ever. So I sell coaching and I sell coaching accreditations. As a coach, I would never try to convince you that becoming a coach is the right life path for you. As a businessman, I want to give you enough information to make that decision on your own. I might recommend you get a coach to help you make that decision. I might serve as your coach. But one of the things about the coaching profession, and you and I align ourselves to the International Coaching Federation, the profession has very strong core values, very strong ethics. And I would never violate those ethics to sell you a seat in one of my coaching accreditation chairs. But it is a good potential paradox to sort through. How do you navigate both of those? I know I spend a lot more time developing coaches than I do coaching. So maybe that's part of my differentiation, part of my continued refinement. I don't want to say I'll never coach because I do. But if I were to say, where's my real focus is on the coaching accreditation. And we have teams of coaches that deliver the coaching for us on the most part. It seems like settling on doing this podcast, like it's revealing its value over time because we're having these conversations that's like, what are people thinking about coaching in organizations? And now we're talking about marketing coaching. And so it's it's really valuable because it's just information. We're not trying to be like talking about the product all the time. Yeah. And you've struck on one of my favorite subjects, and that is how do you show someone the magic of coaching before they've seen it? So part of what you and I are trying to do with our distinguished guests is communicate that magic pre-coaching agreement, bringing on people who are in the coaching world or have received coaching and that they can describe what it was like. We just started a cohort this morning. I'm a bit of a freak, so it's kind of like Christmas morning and every time we get to start a cohort, it's close to 100 people, if not over 100 people in there. And one of the guarantees I make to them based on our experiences is that this course is going to change your personal and professional life forever. I know that's a pretty bold statement and to some extent it's empty words because there's no proof there. I could tell stories, but it's still just a story that I'm telling. But it's always amazing to me how quickly they see that. We did an Australian cohort not quite two weeks ago where it was me 5 p.m. to 3 a.m. teaching a cohort in Australia. We had a a gentleman come on who was a retired senior executive who had been hired as a coach to coach other senior executives. And so he came on as a favor to someone. But literally within half a session, we blew his mind. He was like, what just happened? So you talk about the difficulty of marketing. I'm still miles away from figuring out how to show somebody the magic of coaching before they've actually seen it or experienced it for themselves. So you can experience it for yourself being a coach and you can experience it for yourself coaching. There are also like technology companies and, you know, people that are more, I don't know, like Silicon Valley app developers doing coaching. Like, so how important is like how you package it and how you deliver it? How much do you think about that? And I think about it a lot. You know, I keep reminding myself and everyone else we're 23rd year of the 21st century. And I think AI holds great promise. I think we've seen technology deliver great promise. Both are facilitators of value. Rarely are they value unto themselves. So when I think about technology and coaching, and largely this burden falls to you, my computer scientist co-host, how can technology facilitate the magic of coaching? 
I know there are companies using AI in some form or other in their coaching, but in in many respects, like in many other areas, we might be a generation two away from really amazing value. And I have learned over 60 years of life that the shortcut is really the best way. And so I'm really pondering what that value might be in the short term. Yeah, from a technology perspective, you can kind of get things done really, really quickly or really efficiently. But if you don't define like exactly what the parameters are and if we're not able to quantify like the magic of coaching, then it's not going to matter if we can automate it, you know? Yeah. And, you know, having been in this leadership world and this leadership development world, coaching with a statistical background as well. So I'm very familiar with statistically significant practices and anecdotal practices, you know, and the differences therein. One of the hardest challenges in social science, any science really, but especially in social science is measuring success. Because a human being has one thing that no other animal on earth has, and that's volition, choice. And so there are infinite variables of how we behave, how we learn, how we react. So when you try to measure the benefits of anything human, it's fraught with risk. And so trying to associate return on investment with leadership development, return on investment with coaching, return on investment with coach accreditation, it's terribly difficult. And so proceed with caution would be my first insight. Don't do it. Just don't throw your hands up and say you can't do it, but proceed with caution because there's a classic management paper of the absurdity of expecting A when you're rewarding B. Mm-hmm. And the same is true of metrics, right? If you count the wrong thing and you say, good job, you got four of these and it's counterproductive in actuality or has unintended consequences, you got to be very careful. And so I ha- this is why I skyrocketed through my PhD in 10 years. Right? It's, it's very hard to measure leadership development. And so when you're trying to write a theoretical paper on leadership development and your committee wants to see metrics associated with that, it's challenging. Mm-hmm. I could tell you very, very clearly the coefficients are positive. I just can't tell you how many cupfuls you're going to get. Mm-hmm. Or how many pounds you're going to get. But I do know absolutely it's positive. The research, the literature is very, very clear on that. What I tell people is keep watching the things you already count. And if it's working, they should get better. So cost to hire, attrition, training, orientation, anything you want to hire, you'll measure bottom line if you're a for-profit business. Is your bottom line improving? If you're a nonprofit, are you able to serve more of what your product is? If you're government, Are you getting things done quicker and more efficiently, more effectively? So measure those, keep watching those things you already measure and be very, very careful about adding new things to measure. Yeah. And then you can measure like which, which things are increasing faster per dollar and all that. So Mm -hmm. yeah, there's so much to talk about in statistical analysis and stuff. It's kind of, it's fun to think about. So all three together, you know, (laughs) we've kind of talked about each one a little bit. Sure. How do you look at Two Roads leadership in relation to the niche and the demographics and why? Yeah, I think in some way they're separate and distinct from me as an individual. I'm the lead facilitator on most things we do. 
So this cohort we just kicked off for the Australian boot camp last weekend. So the company, the organization has a very different focus than me as an individual. The process is just as valid for an inanimate corporation as it is for a living, breathing human. So you and I should revisit or clarify or further articulate what's the why of 2RL, what's the demographic that 2RL is serving, and what are the products? This is one of the things when you really dig into Find Your Why from Simon Sinek. At least this is my takeaway. He was talking to corporations much more than he was talking to individuals. And his favorite topic is Apple. He keeps talking about Apple's success, Apple's sustained success across many different product lines. And it was because they always knew their why as an organization. Mm. But the way he defines it for a corporation is very different than you would define it for an individual. Because the why for the corporation is, is it enduring? Can it survive changes in technology? Can it survive changes in culture? A lot of the people you and I work with are one-person businesses. When you think about it as an individual, what gets you up in the morning is very different than what's enduring for a corporation. I kind of got the same takeaway there where we even talk about an example where like the company makes like bull whips or something like mm-hmm. for like horse travel. And then, mm-hmm. you know, when the automobile takes over, like if their why was to help facilitate travel, they would have jumped on that industry. But yeah, that's a pretty big leap to think that I was making leather horse whips and that I could make a why that would endure the transformation from horse to car. Mm hmm. I'm in the transportation propulsion business, perhaps. And so instead of horsepower, I'm going to gas power. Yeah, it's an extreme example. but No, it is. And <laughs> I think it's very valid, though. Yeah, yeah, most examples, it's like maybe you have 10 products that are, you know, not focused on your why and you pair them back, but not that you have to change industry so drastically. Yeah, I don't know if anybody survives that, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Now, I do look at Apple, Microsoft. They've endured because they kept the broad enough focus and were able to pivot. There's tons of literature on the innovator's dilemma, the founder's dilemma. A lot of those really great works talk about why is it so difficult to do that? I keep staring over here at my LinkedIn statement. I help frustrated leaders transform their lives and careers. I think maybe what I've discovered is if I am talking about me personally, I need to drop coaching off of there and just do coach training as my personal life journey. You know, the hardest part about doing this is every time you say yes to a narrower niche, you're saying no to people that you're working with right now today. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of the message from both of these books, or, or maybe the entirety of the literature, even, you know, this other book, there's a third one I wanted to talk about, Mastering LinkedIn, uh, John. Stimel, because he talks about a lot of the same thing. Are you focusing your message sufficiently that you're not saying no? So let's say you're in my coaching world right now and I strike coaching from my byline and LinkedIn and I say, I'll never write another thing that deals directly with coaching. I'll always talk about coach training. That doesn't mean I'm going to kick you out of my world. It just means I'm not writing to you. I'm not speaking directly to you. Mm-hmm. You're certainly still welcome in my world. I'm just not going to spend advertising dollars. I'm not going to write posts or even articles that don't address that very specific focus. 
I see a lot of analogies between what we've been talking about here this entire time and pursuing a doctorate. Because when you write a doctoral dissertation, you have to contribute to the literature. It's one of the requirements. So when you write your problem statement and your research study, how are you contributing to the literature? What are you discovering that doesn't exist today? Well, part of the reality of doing that is you go from this entire body of knowledge and you narrow it and you narrow it and you narrow it and you narrow it and you end up with a sliver of the literature and then you add to that sliver of literature. And so I keep reminding myself of the 7.7 billion people in this world. I'm literally only talking about a few thousand or a few tens of thousands that my coaching accreditation is specifically reaching out to bring them into that. You have to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's like, if it was like intuitive, you might have already done it yourself without getting advice to do it. You know, like it's always frustrating to like adjust something that you're already used to doing. Yeah. And, you know, in a couple sentences, you've really described why people need coaches, right? Why would somebody that's been leading for 40 years, CEO for 15 years, need to talk to anybody about what you want to do next? I was just talking to Rosalie a few minutes ago about the common sense phenomenon. Part of the magic of coaching is the common sense phenomenon. And that is once you see something, you're like, oh, yeah, that's coaching. (laughs) But until you've seen it, until you've participated, until you've experienced the magic, you're like, yeah, that'll never happen. So you've just described why we recommend people get coaches and the value you can bring to the market as a coach. Well, that concludes this episode of Building a Coaching Culture. I truly hope that this episode was helpful to you. If it was, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe stop and give us a rating or a review and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.